Welcome back, guys, to Neurology Exam Prep from Yale University Neurology Department. Um, my name is Safa Abdel-Hakim. I'm PGY3 in the Neurology Program. Uh, today, we have our Program Director, Dr. Muller, who's going to uh, walk us through basics of seizures and uh, uh, definition of epilepsy um, and a little bit about semiology as well. Uh, and this is an episode that uh, should act as a foundation uh, for further episodes that we will record um, to take a, a deeper dive into the topics. Um, how are you doing, Dr. Moeller? Oh, I'm doing great. Thanks, Safa. Uh, I'm excited to do this one. I know we conceived of it at the relatively last minute, but I think this is a good opportunity to review some of the foundational principles of classification and diagnosis of uh, epilepsy and related disorders. And I think I think this will be a good episode, both for people who are early on in their training, medical students, and also uh, junior residents this time of year, but also as a nice uh, way to put everything together for our senior residents, for uh, people preparing for certification exams too. Excellent. Uh, why don't we just talk a little bit about the, dif the definition of epilepsy? Yeah, it's a great question, uh, Safa. So up until a few years ago, there was a lot of debate about the definition of epilepsy. And I think one of the reasons is there's a lot going on with epilepsy and with epileptic seizures. And up until the last decade or so, a consensus did not exist regarding uh, operational definitions of epilepsy. And I will say that uh, at the outset that there is some ongoing debate about the definitions but in general, there is some agreement about what we call an operational or a practical uh, definition of epilepsy from a clinical perspective, and we can talk about why that's important. So I think the first thing to define or talk about is a seizure. And this one, I think even residents have a hard time getting their head around. But a seizure, an epileptic seizure, is defined by the International Class, uh, International League uh, Against Epilepsy as a transient occurrence of sign or signs or symptoms due to abnormal, excessive, or synchronous neuronal activity in the brain. And so that is, there are signs and symptoms, that is, something happens that is noticeable to the patient, and in some cases when there are signs noticeable to observers, and that that is specifically related to the actions of neurons and particularly excessive and synchronous activity of neurons. And when you think about it pathophysiologically, an epileptic seizure occurs because a population of neurons fires synchronously in a way that it's not supposed to. And I think this is a useful definition. This fits in some of the clinical manifestations we see and also some of the EEG manifestations. Of course, this definition of an epileptic seizure does not include, for example, subclinical or electrographic seizures, and this is where some of the debate comes along. There are times when people have epileptic seizures on EEG, which are related to excessive or asynchronous neural activity in the brain, but we do not see clinical manifestations, and in some cases, patients are not aware of uh, manifestations themselves. But in general, uh, we accept this to be the definition of, ep of a seizure. How about a conceptual definition of epilepsy? <laughs> so basically, epilepsy, conceptually, so just sort of the way we think of it and in terms of our shared mental model, has also been outlined by the International League Against Epilepsy. And I'm just going to read 
uh, one definition that they've given, and that is that epilepsy is a disorder of the brain, so it's a brain problem, characterized by an enduring predisposition. That is, there is an, uh, um, an ongoing predisposition to generate epileptic seizures. So we um, have already defined what epileptic seizures mean, and basically, conceptually, epilepsy means that the brain is likely to reproduce those seizures. And again, those seizures are unprovoked. They're not brought on by other things that would generate seizures in somebody without epilepsy. In addition, uh, we do know, and those of us who care for people with epilepsy know, that there are other non-seizure manifestations uh, of epilepsy, and those can include neurobiological, cognitive, psychosocial, and social consequences of the disease. And in many cases, those relate to seizures, but in some cases, they relate to comorbidities or to the underlying cause of the seizures in the first place. Yeah. It, importantly, the definition of epilepsy requires the occurrence of at least one epileptic seizure. Uh, so that's interesting. So that's conceptual, and that's really nice to think about, and I think it's useful as a shared mental model. But of course, it's, it's difficult to sort of play out in practice once you get into the exceptions. So there are actually um, a few operational or practical clinical definitions of epilepsy. Uh, the first is that you have at least two unprovoked seizures or reflex seizures, that, like reading epilepsy or things like that, that have occurred at least 24 hours apart. So you've had one seizure, and at least 24 hours later, you've had another seizure. And those are unprovoked, and we'll get back to the importance of that. Uh, or <clears throat> you could have a single unprovoked seizure or a reflex seizure, and there is a probability of another seizure occurring that's relatively high. And one of the numbers that's used in the definition is that there is at least a 60% chance of uh, an additional uh, unprovoked seizure over the next 10 years. And a lot of that comes from first seizure trials, and we're not gonna get into them in this podcast, but generally speaking, if you have epileptiform activity on EEG, or if you have a structural abnormality on, uh, on MRI or an exam uh, abnormality, uh, on your physical exam uh, that points to a predisposition towards seizures. Basically, if you've had one seizure plus some of those things, we would say you have epilepsy. And then the third, and this gets really tricky, is you have a diagnosis of an epilepsy syndrome. Uh, the best example, and the one that's used a lot uh, as to why that's important, is Landau-Kleffner syndrome, for example. And Landau-Kleffner syndrome, we've talked about it other, in other podcasts, is a, is a degenerative or uh, cog neurocognitive neurobehavioral syndrome where you have epileptiform abnormalities, but you might not have clinical seizures and you have language regression, uh, typically in childhood. And so uh, that needs to be fit into the operational definition and that's why that's the third. So to review, uh, epilepsy is defined as a, at least two unprovoked seizures occurring at least 24 hours apart. Mm -hmm. So that's the first definition. The second one is uh, an unprovoked or reflex seizure with a probability of further seizures of at least uh, 60% in the next couple of years. And in practice, that usually means either epileptiform discharges on EEG or an abnormal MRI or, or physical exam, or the third, a diagnosis of an epilepsy syndrome. And the reason this is important, it's not just a bunch of eggheads waxing philosophical about the importance of epilepsy and all that sort of thing. It's because in general, this is going to guide our decisions about treatment. If somebody has a, diagnos a diagnosis of epilepsy, we are typically going to treat with anti-seizure drugs. Wonderful. And I think it helps also while discussing with families. Uh
Um, great. Why don't we talk about uh, classification of seizure types? Yeah, I think this is really important. And, um, <clears throat> and uh, there, there have been some modifications in the classification of seizure types, most recently in 2017. And uh, I, for one, really appreciate the newer classification of seizure types because I think it's much more intuitive. So for many years, up until 2017, uh, we were using the terms complex partial, simple partial. And, and in my experience, having to teach medical students and residents about the difference between these two was always a bit of a headache because I think they're completely non-intuitive terms. So uh, the 2017 classification dispenses with complex partial and simple partial, not to mention petite mal and, and grand mal, which are sort of old, older terms, uh, and has, uh, has separated seizure types into three main categories. And those are seizures that are of focal onset, seizures that are of generalized onset, and seizures that are of unknown onset. We don't know, or there's some mix, or they're unclassified. And the bulk of the seizures we're going to see are going to fall into the categories of either focal onset or generalized onset. And in general, in practice, about two-thirds of people with epilepsy will have focal onset seizures, and about a third or so will have general onset seizures. So uh, those aren't perfect numbers, and they depend on age, but overall, uh, that's, that's your classification. And I think that's really helpful, just to be clear. So focal onset conceivably means that you have that abnormal synchronous electrical activity that has, uh, has an onset, onset in one specific part of the brain. Generalized onset means that there is simultaneous or nearly simultaneous onset of that synchronous activity in both hemispheres at the same time. This is something that's sometimes confusing because we see on EEG a generalized seizure, for example, and we see that it's frontal maximal or occipital maximal. But the important thing is it's involving both hemispheres nearly synchronously or exactly synchronously at the same time. So maybe we can talk a little bit about focal seizures. Sure. Yeah. So uh, focal seizures really uh, fall into three different categories. And, and uh, you know, I find it easier to chunk things. I'm definitely a splitter and not a clumper. And I like to uh, uh, divide things into sort of simpler classifications. And the focal onset seizures include focal aware seizures, that is focal seizures where awareness, that meaningful interaction with the environment is maintained. Mm -hmm. This is what used to be called simple partial seizures, although that's probably the last time I'm going to say that term in this podcast. Ever. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know about ever. I have to be bilingual with these terms. <laughs> um, the second uh, type is focal seizures with impaired awareness. Uh, we sometimes call those FIA. Uh, and that means that there is some loss of uh, meaningful interaction with the environment. And on a physiological uh, perspective, that likely means that there's involvement of aspects of the reticular activating system or other aspects of awareness that are involved. And then the third is that you can have focal to bilateral tonic-clonic seizures. And that's what used to be called a secondarily generalized tonic-clonic seizure. So focal aware used to be called simple partial. Focal with impaired awareness used to be called complex partial. And focal to bilateral tonic-clonic, which used to be called secondarily generalized uh, tonic-clonic seizures. And then when you look at focal seizures, 
uh, and the difference between focal aware and focal unaware, that really relates to where in the brain the focal activity is starting from. So, for example, if the focal activity is starting in a premotor or a motor or a supplementary supplementary motor uh, territory, we might have clonic uh, components to those seizures. We might have myoclonic or tonic components to those seizures. If we have uh, seizures that are starting in the uh, orbitofrontal or especially the mesiofrontal cortex, we might see hyperkinetic seizures. You know, we might see seizures with a lot of activity. If we have seizures arising from mesial temporal structures, then we might see automatisms, especially with focal seizures with impaired awareness. And those are sort of semi-purposeful, automatic, but meaningless motor mo movements like lip smacking, picking, pulling, things like that. Um, so those are types of motor onset focal seizures. And then there can be focal seizures with a non-motor onset, and uh, those can include seizures with autonomic manifestations. So people can have flushing, uh, palpitations, salivation, things like that. And areas that are involved in that include the insular cortex, include the temporal lobe, especially mesial temporal structures. There are seizures that are associated with behavioral arrest, and those can be uh, in many different areas, but again, often mesial temporal, orbitofrontal, uh, uh, insular, cingulate, et cetera. Seizures with cognitive manifestations, and those can be very complex, and the nature of those seizures can go on. Uh, seizures with emotional manifestations, usually mesial frontal or orbitofrontal, and seizures with sensory manifestations. And again, it depends on the sensation, whether that's visual, auditory, uh, tactile, uh, olfactory, et cetera, and, and it's going to depend on where in the brain. But all of them are really focal onset seizures, and they either have an awareness, and most of the ones with, with uh, sensory or cognitive or autonomic manifestations are going to have some retention of awareness, or they have impaired awareness, such as those with automatisms or uh, those with uh, behavioral arrest. Clinically, though, and I'm, I'm just wondering, I can see how those could be difficult to detect uh, sometimes on EEG. Is that right? Like, Yeah. So, you know, um, one of the reasons I really love epilepsy is that a good history and careful observation of behavior is just as important as any of the diagnostic tests. Absolutely. And we know that in order to see an ictal abnormality on EEG, it may take up to 10 centimeters squared of cortex to be involved in the, uh, in the synchronous abnormal activity in order to see an ictal rhythm on scalp EEG. And we know this from simultaneously scalp uh, and, uh, and intracranial EEG recording experiments. Um, so 10 squared centimeters does not mean 10 by 10, it means 3.3 by 3.3, uh, but even still that's a relatively large area of cortex. And that's superficial cortex. If you have a seizure that has an onset in the insular cortex, or the anterior cingulate, or the orbitofrontal, or the mesial inferior temporal, then you may not see any clinical seizure. And I've certainly had experiences of uh, recording patients who are having innumerable definite epileptic seizures uh, without EEG correlate. And so this is where taking a good history, monitoring autonomic symptoms, monitoring heart rate and breath, uh, breath rate on video EEG monitoring, uh, and knowing a lot about seizure semiology can really help you uh, discern these things. Excellent. Can we talk about generalized onset seizures? 
Sure. Uh, so generalized onset seizures, there, there are a number to remember, but I think for those listeners who can remember six things, and I think most of us can remember six things, that's one less than a traditional phone number. So uh, it's, a, it's a quantifiable number. If we can remember six things, we're in good shape. So the six that are good to remember, and we can add a few onto that, but the six that are good to remember are tonic, clonic, tonic-clonic, so that's three, myoclonic, atonic, and absence. So did I get six things? Yeah, you did. I counted. Good. Oh, excellent. Thanks for holding. I, I'm seeing you on Zoom and you're holding up your fingers, but I looked away for a second. <laughs> so then you do have some combination of those things, which can present some of the other generalized onset seizures. So in juvenile myoclonic epilepsy, for example, we have a multi-hyphenated seizure type called a myoclonic tonic clonic seizure. Uh, in, in a syndrome called uh, uh, DOSA syndrome, sometimes we have what's called a myoclonic atonic seizure. Uh, epileptic spasms are probably some combination of tonic and atonic, uh, although they can be harder to, uh, uh, to sort out. So there are some hyphens which help. But really, if you remember those six things, uh, then you've got uh, pretty much uh, everything about uh, generalized seizures. And again, the importance is that these are of generalized onset. So as I said before, you might have heard that uh, focal to bilateral tonic-clonic seizure is a type of focal onset seizure, but you can also have tonic-clonic seizures of presumed generalized onset, such, such as those in generalized epilepsy syndromes. Uh, and then... Um, Within the absence seizures, you can have a few different categories, including typical or atypical. There are absence seizures that have some myoclonus associated with them, and, and there's also some absence syndromes that have eyelid myoclonia associated with them as well. But these are all uh, types of generalized onset seizures. So let's walk through those a little bit. And I'm not going to get into a lot of seizure semiology because you have to see this to understand it, but uh, uh, let's walk through this. So the important thing to remember about tonic-clonic seizures is that there is a tonic phase and then a clonic phase. And this is so important for epilepsy diagnosis. There is typically, with a bilateral tonic-clonic seizure, initially a sudden tonic stiffening. So people are stiff as a board. And actually, when you ask witnesses about this, this is the thing they remember. And this is one of the things that can help you distinguish this from syncope or some other non-epileptic phenomenon. And this tonic phase is actually one of the things that generates the ictal cry. So the ictal cry is thought to be generated by forced inspiration, so contraction of, of respiratory muscles through contracted um, vocal cords, which is disturbing and people remember. Um, the tonic phase is when people bite their tongue. The tonic phase is when people have vertebral compression fractures. Mm -hmm. The tonic phase is when people have the posterior shoulder dislocation. The tonic phase is what generates the pain that can happen afterwards when people say that after a generalized tonic-clonic seizure that they are stiff or sore. So, you know, we tend to, and those of us with less experience, tend to focus on the shaking. But I think the tonic phase is the thing to watch and the thing to think about. Okay. Then the tonic, the clonic phase usually emerges a little later in the seizure. Sometimes you see it early on, but usually you see a tonic phase. And then you see emergence of low amplitude, high frequency, clonic jerking, which is generalized. And gradually over time, that slows down and becomes higher amplitude 
and then it stops, and then there's this postictal suppression of brain activity with noisy breathing, wet breathing, it's called stertorous breathing. Uh, uh, people are difficult to arouse, and this is what we call the postictal state. And in the most severe forms, when this uh, postictal suppression becomes very severe and somebody isn't stimulated, this can lead to sort of the total respiratory and then cardiac shutdown that we see in sudden death in epilepsy. So, uh, which typically happens after bilateral tonic-clonic seizures. So just a little talk about the semiology of the tonic-clonic seizures, but it's important the tonic comes first and the tonic we need to remember. And when we go after a history, we're really thinking about tonic. Well, that's very useful. Thank you. Yeah, I, I think, you know, uh, most of us in epilepsy have our pet peeves. And one of them is when people apply terms incorrectly. And, uh, and so often in, in documentation in the notes, uh, I'll, I'll read something and it said the patient was lightheaded, dizzy, had palpitations and then collapsed and had tonic-clonic movements. And that may or may not be true. I think somebody saw some shaking and, and that's how they've applied it. But uh, it really uh, leads to incorrect conclusions about what that might be. And so one uh, piece of emphasis I would have to our listeners is I am a big believer in using real words rather than jargon to describe what we see. I would prefer if somebody said, and that would impress me more if somebody said, the patient became very stiff, then started to have symmetrical shaking. This lasted 45 seconds and they were very sleepy afterwards. There's no jargon in, involved in that and it tells me much more about exactly what happened rather than the patient was observed to have seizure-like or tonic-clonic movements. And that tells me absolutely nothing. Absolutely. You mentioned some. You, I'm glad you went over the ictal cry. And just for us, um, as we listen to seizure semiology, would you mind telling us about figure four? Sure. So uh, the figure of four movement is a lateralized uh, finding that can help us tell the onset of a focal to bilateral tonic clonic seizure or a focal onset seizure. And so uh, often with a focal to bilateral tonic-clonic seizure, just at the onset of the bilateral tonic-clonic phase, there will be asymmetric tonic posturing. And typically there'll be elevation and extension of the arm contralateral to seizure onset, to the hemisphere of seizure onset, with flexion of the ipsilateral arm in a way that looks like a number four. Uh, and uh, this is often combined with versive head movement, so the head movement, and again, that usually is away from the seizure onset, uh, and, uh, and those uh, can be helpful clues as to the onset, to the focal onset of bilateral tonic-clonic seizure. Great, thank you for that. So moving on quickly through the other types of generalized onset seizures, I'm, go I'm gonna go sort of in order of commonness or, or, or how common they are. The other one is absence. Uh, one thing that's really important is to have the ability to write a little table to distinguish absence seizures from focal impaired awareness seizures. Uh, and again, I'm, this is gonna sound like a list of, of Moeller's complaints, but another thing that uh, I do find as a, a minor pet peeve is, uh, is when people apply the term absence to any seizure with behavioral arrest. And for example, a 55-year-old person with a stroke who has a behavioral arrest and it's described as absence is almost certainly incorrect. Uh, it probably was a focal impaired awareness seizure with behavioral arrest. Absence seizures in typical, the cl uh, classical absence seizures are a type of generalized uh, seizure. Uh, age of onset is typically childhood 
or uh, juvenile age, uh, so school age or teenagers um, uh, years. Um, they are generally brief, so typically in the order of 10 to 30 seconds, rarely longer than a minute. There is an abrupt onset and offset with almost a complete gap uh, between the onset and offset, so there is often no postictal phase. People pick up right where they left off. Um, there can be automatisms, so people can have eyelid fluttering, they can have lip smacking, they can have other things like that, but those are generally midline automatisms and very subtle. Um, and, uh, and importantly on EEG, of course, there is a generalized abnormality. In childhood absence, that's three hertz generalized spike wave discharges. And in uh, juvenile absence, sometimes the frequency is a little faster. So that all is uh, very different from what's seen in focal impaired awareness seizures, which are often longer, often have more complex automatisms, are a focal onset, can occur at any age, but often later age groups, and, uh, and generally often have a postictal phase of fatigue or disorientation or something like that. Um, but we do see these two mixed up uh, frequently and misclassified frequently, and again, I have to get back to, if somebody just said the patient had a behavioral arrest for 30 seconds and then recovered right away, that's much more useful uh, diagnostically than saying they had absence movements uh, or something like that. Um, it, one of my old uh, teachers used to say that premature conclusions preclude subsequent thought. Uh, so if you <laughs> Uh, if you um, if you use early conclusions and apply jargon and all that sort of thing, your brain shuts off and you don't think about this from a me mechanistic point of view as we are. So the next one is myoclonic seizures. So epileptic myoclonus is a specific type of myoclonus that has an origin in the cortex. Uh, it's a type of generalized seizure and uh, is brief, quick jerks, either in isolation or in groups, and is most commonly seen in juvenile myoclonic epilepsy, which we've uh, we've discussed before. Uh, tonic seizures are sudden stiffening. They are sometimes combined with atonic seizures, which is a sudden loss of tone. Uh, and those types of seizures are often seen in the more severe epilepsy syndromes, such as Lennox-Gastaut syndrome and, and related disorders. Clonic seizures are probably one of the rarest types of uh, generalized onset seizures. They can be seen in, uh, in some of the sort of symptomatic generalized epilepsy syndromes. Um, and, and I've seen them also as uh, provoked seizures in the context of uh, some types of drug use. Uh, so uh, certain types of uh, uh, intoxication syndromes can give you pure clonic seizures, but those are really rare to just have generalized clonic jerking without anything else. I wanna talk a little bit about sort of the third category, which is sort of the unknown onset or unclassified types of seizures. And the big one to talk about there is epileptic spasms. And epileptic spasms is sort of a broader term, which does include the spasms which we see in children uh, with West syndrome, for example, which uh, are infantile spasms. But we use the term epileptic spasms because they can occur at any age. And epileptic spasms are, can occur in focal onset disorders and can occur in more generalized disorders, but do have sort of bilateral sudden uh, maintenance of postures, sometimes with a little bit of clonic jerking, lasting a few seconds, and clinically associated with uh, an electrodecremental, uh, or sorry, an EEG associated with electrodecremental response. So that's the epileptic spasms, and that's an important classification of, uh, of uh, seizure onset. I would assume if epileptic spasms happen in a focal onset, they, there will be some lateralizing 
Sometimes or- not. You know, the thing is with babies that, um, you know, you could have a, a, a baby with tuberous sclerosis. They have specific focal tubers. Presumably these are contributing to the onset of the seizures, but clinically and electrographically, the spasms appear to be generalized. And I think that's why they've lumped it in with the more sort of unknown onset uh, range. Sounds good. Um, I think it would be helpful for us to know how to approach a spell or an event before we label it a seizure. So, you know, I think this is really helpful. And I think the, um, the first uh, two questions uh, to ask are, was the event a seizure? So was it a seizure or something else that was not epileptic? And if it was a seizure, uh, was it provoked or was it not provoked? And so the first question really talks about the differential diagnosis. And the second question talks about etiology, because in the end, we're trying to win our way down to epileptic seizures, which are those that we would treat with anti-seizure drugs. Regarding the first question, really, we're thinking about a few main differential diagnoses. So the main differential diagnosis for a bilateral tonic-clonic seizure is going to include uh, psychogenic non-epileptic attacks, and will also include syncope. There are a few other things that fit into the uh, classification, but in my experience and in in the experience of most people who uh, treat people with uh, epilepsy, it's really those. So uh, if they are not seizures, sometimes I break it down and I say they're either psychogenic or not psychogenic. I'm not gonna get too much into psychogenic non-epileptic spells or non-epileptic attacks uh, today because I think it's sort of uh, a conversation in and of itself and maybe uh, we'll set up a, um, a time to talk to one of our faculty members with a specific interest in that disorder uh, uh, in a different podcast. Um, other to, than to say these are involuntary seizure-like activities which likely have some sort of dissociative origin uh, etiologically. Um, they're real, they're involuntary, but they're not related to that synchronous, uh, synchronous uh, electrographic activity. Mm-hmm. And then uh, of, those, uh, uh, of those events that are uh, not seizures, um, that are not psychogenic, the most common is syncope. And then there's a shorter list of other things, including movement disorders, sleep disorders, and cerebrovascular disorders uh, like limb shaking, uh, TIA. Um, a couple of things just when we're talking about the big three, so that is the psychogenic uh, non-epileptic attacks, syncope, and, uh, and, uh, and bilateral tonic-clonic seizures. Um, there are a few things I kind of include in my list of being useful as di- at distinguishing seizures and those that are not useful. And let me start with a few that are not useful, but talked about a lot. Urinary incontinence. So there have been several systematic reviews uh, on urinary incontinence in paroxysmal spells. And incontinence really does not help distinguish uh, bilateral tonic-clonic seizures from uh, non-epileptic attacks or syncope. It occurs in roughly the same amount in each of those syndromes. And, And I have certainly received referrals for somebody who very clearly had syncope. The clinician who referred them was very comfortable with the fact that they had syncope. Um, and they were concerned only because they saw uh, urinary incontinence and they thought, oh, well, if I saw that, it must be seizure. But urinary incontinence can occur equally in all three disorders. Uh, eyes rolled back is not particularly helpful. Uh, in studies of, of syncope, uh, we do see eyes rolling back, and that's not necessarily unusual. 
Uh, we can see that with psychogenic non-epileptic attacks. And injuries are not particularly useful. People can have injuries related to psychogenic attacks or syncope just as equally as they can have with bilateral tonic-clonic seizures. And again, going back to something I said before, I think the ones that it would be important to um, distinguish that are probably useful types of injuries include vertebral compression fractures, posterior dislocation of the shoulder, uh, upper body or face petechiae from valsalva in a bilateral tonic-clonic seizure. Those may be helpful. Mm -hmm. Going on to things that I think are useful at distinguishing these uh, syndromes, those include that noisy stertorous breathing, as we talked about after the event, if people have other types of seizure types, and then the sustained tonic phase uh, with the seizures. Those are all, I think, more useful uh, manifestations. So, uh, you know, we could spend a lot of time talking about uh, distinguishing um, syncope versus non-epileptic attacks versus um, uh, epileptic seizures, but those are a few of the things that are really important. And I think it's really important to take a clear history. You know, in syncope, do they have lightheadedness, pallor, diaphoresis, tunnel vision, roaring of the, uh, in the ears, sense of warmth, palpitations? You know, and if you see any of those things and there's a brief loss of consciousness with quick recovery afterwards, it's probably syncope. And one last clinical pearl is I often ask patients because they don't remember the event themselves. I ask them, what's the, ne what's the next thing you remember? You know, when you woke up, what is the next thing you remember? And people who have been unconscious a long time remember waking up in the ambulance or waking up in the emergency department. Mm -hmm. And people who have been unconscious and recovered quickly remember lying on the floor with people running over to them asking if they're okay. And if somebody remembers lying on the floor with people running over to them asking if they're okay, they have probably not been unconscious very long and they have not had a long period of amnesia afterward. And that is much less likely to be a bilateral tonic-clonic seizure. If somebody remembers vaguely being in the ambulance and vaguely being in the emergency department, really nothing until the next day, then very likely they have had a major perturbation of their consciousness and awareness. And one possibility there would be an epileptic seizure. So I think we've talked a little bit about whether a seizure was a seizure or not, um, but I think it would also be really important to talk about provoked versus unprovoked. Um, this is a difficult concept to get your head around. And uh, a provoked seizure, the other term for it is an acute symptomatic seizure. Uh, and that is a seizure that was an acute symptom of some other perturbation. So we think of acute symptomatic seizures as those that occurred closely from a temporal uh, perspective, so very close from a temporal perspective with some acute brain insult, which could include metabolic disturbances such as electrolyte disturbances, toxins such as drugs or other things, uh, or uh, withdrawal, for example, from benzodiazepines or alcohol, structural abnormalities, infections, inflammation, et cetera. Now, what a close temporal relationship means is a little bit, it depends a little bit, right? We're not going to say that somebody had an alcohol withdrawal seizure two weeks after they had uh, their last drink, um, but we would certainly think it was reasonable if it happened on uh, day three. Of course, the gray area becomes what, hap what if it happens on day seven? Do we think that's an alcohol withdrawal seizure? We know that maybe it's sort of the tail end of where you can see alcohol withdrawal, but is that uh, clinically significant? So some of these require some judgment uh, calls. The last thing I think that is very tough and can be very difficult to sort out are seizures related to 
uh, acute brain injury. So typically, a seizure related to a traumatic brain injury, we would call acute symptomatic or provoked within the first seven days. And then after that, uh, we would say it's unprovoked. But the question is, okay, what if you have a hemorrhagic stroke and on day eight, you have a seizure? Is that provoked or unprovoked? And it seems arbitrary that on day six, we call it provoked and on day eight, we don't. So from a practical perspective, you can see that this breaks down sometimes. Often it's very clear when it's drug or alcohol withdrawal, electrolyte derangements, hypoglycemia, et cetera, that's provoked. We'd never treat that with anti-seizure drugs. Some of these ones in the gray area, we might temporarily treat with anti-seizure drugs to prevent recurrence and then have a conversation about long-term anti-seizure drugs over, uh, uh, as time goes on. Absolutely. And I think this becomes more clinically relevant, but as we hear all of this, a common consult for us is a first seizure. Uh, and I was just sort of wondering if you can share some thoughts about treating the first time seizure uh, versus not. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to keep this really simple. Uh, you're going to have a conversation with the patients. You're going to determine if it was provoked or unprovoked. You're going to determine if it was epileptic or not. And you might come to the end of that and say, okay, this was definitely an epileptic event. If they've had a single event, the likelihood of them having a second unprovoked event, all other things being equal without any additional information is somewhere in the sort of 30 to 40% range uh, based on uh, clinical trials. But it's much higher, as I said before, if they have focal abnormalities on EEG that are epileptiform, or they have either abnormalities on our exam or imaging uh, that suggest increased risk of seizures. So then we may start anti-seizure drugs. Mm -hmm. uh, if EEG and MRI are normal, we may decide to defer starting anti-seizure drugs, knowing that in those patients, the likelihood of recurrence might be closer to 20% over the next couple of years. Um, but some of that depends on patient preference and patient anxiety. And the last point is that if somebody has nocturnal convulsions, we know from one of the trials that that might be associated with higher risk of a second event and people might, uh, might treat. And, and I sometimes lean towards treating sometimes in patients who have had nocturnal convulsions. This is a true art. It requires shared decision-making between the patient and the physician. Uh, and we are going to do the EEG, we're going to do the imaging in a careful examination, and we're going to talk about risks and benefits and sudden death and epilepsy and all of these things driving uh, before we make a decision. Thank you for that review, Dr. Moeller. I think this would be very useful in clinical practice and definitely for examination purposes. Uh, we'll probably take a deeper dive into each of these components at later podcasts, so stay tuned uh, and enjoy your day, everybody. Well, Safa, this was uh, uh, a lot of fun. I hope this is yes. useful. I think it's good timing for the start of the year. It's a topic that's close to my heart, and uh, I'm glad to talk about it with you.